you would, turn along with me in your Bibles or your personal devices to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to be reading just four verses this morning. And we're continuing our study that Dave started a few weeks ago on being into Christ or finding our identities in Christ for those that believe. So let's open in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that we could be here today. We thank you for those that are with us here personally and those that are worshiping with us online. We're grateful, Father, that you sent your only beloved son to die for sins such as us. And we're grateful that you have given us the means of grace through him, through his death and resurrection. And we pray this morning that you would help us to pay attention to what your word says and that we would be encouraged and convicted and exhorted by it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So I'm gonna read from Colossians chapter three, verses one through four. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. The 19th century um, American writer Oliver Wendell Holmes said, some people are so heavenly minded, they are no earthly good. And I really wonder about that accusation today because you know, most of us have the opposite problem. Our minds are so earthly um, filled that we're, we're no heavenly good. We're fixated on earthly things and we're, we're rendered uh, helpless before God. So even those who have embraced Christ, profess faith in Christ, struggle to adopt a mindset that embraces him in a day-to-day -day fashion in your lives. It's easy sort of to do it here this morning or online if you're following along. It's, it's sort of easy to do it when you're talking about God. But to do it in the midst of trying to live is quite another thing. I work a full-time job. I know how that works. You know, the cross comes before the crown and tomorrow's a Monday morning. And many of us have to go to work. And how do you do it? How do you live out your life? The believer in Jesus Christ, there are practical implications of both the death and the resurrection of Christ that leads to a new way of life. One of the mistakes that we often make is we think, well, I profess faith in Christ. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins. I believe that I rose again with him. And we think that then we go our merry way, but that's not how it works. I love what John Murray, the, the Scottish theologian said. He said, not only does the new life have its inception in Christ, it is also continued by virtue of the same relationship with him. It is in Christ or being united with Christ that the Christian life and behavior are conducted. Like we don't profess Christ and do our own thing. God actually walks with us as we try to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good pleasure, Paul says in Philippians chapter two. It's interesting when you think about Christ in an exalted state, in where he is at the right hand of God, and we'll take a look at that in context in a moment. 
We must ground our thinking, our minds. Don't get this wrong. Christians are not supposed to throw away their minds. Christians need their minds. We're supposed to love our God with all our heart, strength, soul, mind. God's very interested in our minds. I've studied the Bible for a long time, and my mind has been developed as I've read God's word. And for those that believe, as you've read it, your mind is increased. God's after our minds. The devil's best work, C.S. Lewis says in Screwtape Letters, is not by putting things into our minds. It's by keeping things out of our minds. It's keeping truth out of our minds. And see, in this book in Colossians, we're not able to read the whole thing today, but that would probably be worth, worth it at some point just to read through it if you haven't read it recently. The book of Colossians, like many of Paul's other writings, provide us with the theological basis. In grammar, grammar terms, the indicative of what Christ has done. He's already done a bunch of things for us. He's done a lot of things on our behalf to enable us to live the Christian life, the imperative. In the book of Colossians, like the book of Ephesians, like the book of Romans, Paul spent about two chapters talking about the indicative, what God has done for us in Christ, who Christ is, what he has done on the cross. And now he is going to bring with exhortation. He's going to bring with the imperative of what we ought to do, or as Schaefer said, how then we ought we to live? How should we live? Because it doesn't do it just to have these things in our minds. Our, as the Puritans said, screw the truth into your mind so that it will get to your heart, so it will get to your soul. God's all about affecting the way that we live. And if our Christianity is just a book that has no effect on us, then it's not real Christianity. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said in The Cost of Discipleship, that's cheap grace. And this grace cost God his only beloved son so that we might have life and life in full, praise his name. So the theme that I'm going to try to get at this morning is the death in the resurrection of Christ is the only way believers may have both their thinking and their lifestyle oriented around Christ's kingship of, over all things. How much does it affect us that Christ is sitting on a throne this morning? And the, the three ways that we want to look at this is to get us to keep seeking and to keep thinking on the things above. To understand what it means to be hidden with Christ. And Peter just got with that uh, with, with the children a moment ago. And then finally, to ponder our final destiny. So look with me again in, ver in verse 1. I know it's up here if you don't, you're not following along in the Bible. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Listen, keep seeking the things above. Don't stop. Keep doing it. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This section marks an end that we haven't been able to read uh, of Paul's argument against false teachers. And there was, a, there was a bunch of them. Some would say they were Gnostics. Most commentators say they were proto-Gnostics. Gnosticism is from the Greek word gnosis in its knowledge, and these teachers taught that there was some kind of special knowledge that only a select few had, only just a precious few had. And one of the things that they were teaching was um, ascetic practices and distorted laws for spiritual fulfillment. 
You don't need that. You don't need anything that's, that's esoteric to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. There's only two things that you really have to understand. You have to be able to identify with Christ's death and resurrection. This is the ground for the gospel. The gospel means good news or news that's good. The ground of the gospel is always the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there's a little word there, and I didn't like grammar at all when I was in school. When I was in school, um, in elementary school, they'd hand out these really thick and fat grammar books. I'd say, not again. And every year, it was the same book. And I just, I disdained learning grammar until I hit uh, the tiger of Hebrew and the lion of Greek in seminary. And I was like, grammar. The first thing they passed out was English grammar for, for language students because they knew that none of us paid attention to those little books that they gave out. The Bible is filled with argument and grammar, and sometimes it's helpful to know it. Well, there's one such thing, and one of the reasons why we're reading from the NASB version is that it's the closest to the original. So in the original, and believe me, you don't need to know Greek to know God, okay? So that's not what I'm saying. But there are times when it's important to follow the argument. So there's a little therefore in verse one, therefore, what's it there for? Well, he's about to tell you, it says, if you have been raised with Christ. So this little participle, if, it introduces what they call, I, I know, it's grammar, First class condition where the first clause, therefore, if we have been raised with Christ, is assumed to be true for the sake of, sake of the argument. This is assumed to be true. Now, I know most likely that everybody listening to me this morning is not somebody that's professed faith in Jesus Christ, either here or listening online. The result of being raised from the dead with Christ is that one is enabled to aim their will at what pleases God. You're able to aim your will, your direction, your passion, your desires, your ambition. If you have not believed on Christ, you will never be able to seek what is above. You say, I don't want to. My point. But believers want to seek what is above. They want to learn what it means to please God. Do they do it perfectly? No. I mean, my wife is here today. Just talk to her about how imperfect I am, you know. Talk to my children about how imperfect I am. But I'm trying. I'm getting back on the horse every time I fall off or I get kicked off by somebody. But we are to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. And that's impetus. That's God pushing us to the finish line. Listen, you don't, you don't, you don't pass go. You don't collect $200 monopoly speak, unless God is working in you. And if you try to do it without God, you become a Pharisee. Because none of us can live up to the standard that God has given us. Jesus said at the, end, at, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Who's perfect here today? Please stand. Please stand. Please stand. Nobody's perfect. Nobody can make the standard. That's why he sent his only beloved son, because nobody's perfect. And if you reject that sacrifice, if you reject him, you won't have life. And I'm not talking about resurrection life in the here and now only. I'm talking about when we see him, we shall be like him, just like him. That's glory. This is not a one-time thing. This striving, and I think that the NASB gets it right here, keep seeking 
the things above. Don't stop. Don't stop. You might want to throw away your faith here today. You might have seen something, heard something, had something done to you. You might be what the mystics call in the dark night of the soul and God seems far from you. Don't throw away your faith. Don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Get, you know, the Bible has a word called hupomone. It almost sounds like what it is. Hupomone. Steadfast endurance. Keep on keeping on. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, the famous philosopher, theologian in Northampton, Mass, wrote a lot of treatises. But I think my favorite of all of them, and I haven't read all of them, but my favorite of the ones I've read is a, is a book called Religious Affections. And in it, in the beginning of it, he says true religion, Christianity, they use religion for Christianity, is in great part consists in holy affections. In holy affections. It's desire. John Piper gets at it in the book Desiring God. It's desire. It's being, it's wanting to please God. It's wanting to do what he, wa he, he wants. So it says, therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. This is not a literal being raised from the dead. I, I hope you know that. This is not literally being raised from the dead. What he's talking about here is a spiritual resurrection. And that happens the moment that you believe, if you've believed. And what it yields is a change of perspective, a reorientation of your will, ambitions, and behavior. It affects the way that you live. That's what new life is for those that believe. You might be thinking, this is way too esoteric. I don't feel dead. I don't even think I need to be raised. Yet the only basis to live a new life is to die with Christ. That's the only way to live a new life. You must die. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, again, in Cost of Discipleship, says, when Christ calls a man or a woman... He bids them come and die. And there's a real sense to which anybody that's truly professed faith in Christ is in the process of dying to their self, dying to the way that they were, dying to their ambitions, dying to, to wanting to get things for themselves, dying to their pride. You know, this life is a constant death only to yield new life, real life in Christ. And these things above that he talks about, what are they? What are the things above? The things above are tied to Christ. We don't have the time, but if you want to look it up later, Philippians 3, 12 through 21, Paul gets into what it means that the Christian life ought to be oriented around this reference to Christ. It's a Copernican revolution. You know who Copernicus was, right? He was the guy that came up with the theory that the earth, that the sun went around the earth, right? He came up with the theory, or he, he went against the theory that the sun went around the earth, and he posited that the earth went around the sun, him and Galileo. He, he went against the, the standard thought of the day. And when you become a Christian, your whole orientation changes so that the world no longer flows around you. 
and everything that you want and all your desires. Now you can do what Philippians 2 talks, talks about, chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. When was the last time you did that? When was the last time I did that? That is a miracle when anybody considers anybody other than ourselves because we are at the center of our own universe. We always, always think first about ourselves. That's why it says in the second commandment, love thy neighbor as thyself because we know how to love ourselves. Nobody tells, no, you, you really ought to love yourself. You really, no, we love ourselves. We love me, 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 me. We always love ourselves. We don't have to be told to do that. Have children. You'll figure out how, how long it takes for them to love themselves. They always want me, 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 me. And the change is in Christ. It's now long, no longer just about us. There's a second thing I want you to notice in this. It says where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So what Paul is doing is focusing our attention on the glorious position of Christ in heaven who established a decisive victory over rulers and authorities. In Colossians 2.15, let me just read that for you. Colossians 2.15, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, and I think they're demonic, I think he's referring to evil authorities, he made a public display of them having triumph over them um, on the cross. He destroyed them. It's, de it's decisive. See, we ought to be seeking Christ because he's enthroned in heaven. And as we know that anybody that is at the right hand is the seat of authority, preeminence, and power. I want to be with somebody like that. Because Jesus, as we learn in, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, 1 Colossians chapter 1, 15 through, through um, 20, he's sovereign over everything. Not just one thing, not just two things. That includes death. That includes pandemics. That includes cancer. That includes anxiety. That includes depression. That includes whether the, the earth stays in orbit in him, all things cohere. Ponder that one for a, for a moment and you'll blow a, a few circuits. Everything holds together in Christ. He's seated at the right hand of God. We ought to be seeking him because he has authority. And there's an illusion there where it says, sit at my right hand until I make an enemy a footstool for your feet. He says, seated at the right hand of God. That's from Psalm 110. Do you know what verse is quoted most often in the New Testament when it refers to Christ or alluded to in the New Testament? That verse, Psalm 110, verse 1. It's alluded to 23 times in the New Testament. You think it's important? Yeah, I think so. I think God wants us to know that his son who died a, 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 a criminal's death is now seated at his right hand in power and authority. And what are we left to do there? Do you, remember, do you remember in the book of Revelation when John got that incredible revelation, John the Apostle, and he tempted, he, he started worshiping the angel, and the angel said simply, don't. He wanted him to worship the lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world. 
And that's what God wants us to do. This is the glorious picture that we need to set in our minds. Set in our minds that God the Father is sitting on a throne in heaven, Psalm 115, verse 3, doing whatever pleases him. And the exalted Christ is sitting at his right hand where angels and authorities and powers are subject to him, 1 Peter 3, 22. See, our spiritual resurrection portends the future. It predicts the future. And as sovereign ruler of the world and our lives, we don't wait to the last day to, to receive re resurrection life. It starts now. The moment that you believe, you have been raised from the dead. Praise his name. Yeah, it's, 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 there's a tension there, theologians say. It's, it's already, we don't quite... Like, we don't quite feel the, I don't, I don't feel, I don't, look, I'm losing my hair, I'm, I'm, I'm gaining weight, I'm getting old, what's going on here? I thought I had a resurrection life. Well, don't worry, don't worry, someday you'll get a body that matches what happened in your soul. That's glorification. We're not there yet, but it's coming, that day is coming. So one more thought on, on just this one verse. There's a lot in this one verse. Um, he says in verse 2, set your mind on things above, not on things of earth. But before he gets there, he says, set your mind on things above. This is the whole mind thing. Paul loves that word. That word, phroneo, comes up 26 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 23. You think it's important for him? Probably. The root is think. But here, and I think the NASB gets the translation just right, set one's mind on or be, tent, be intent on. If you want to look at an excellent parallel, we don't have the time for it, look to Romans 8, 5 and 6. It talks about this mind set. It's a mind set. Because for Paul, thinking is the way that, thinking for Paul is tied to the way one lives life. I've done some counseling in my life and most of the people that I have counseled had to be fixed first in their minds because the way that they were thinking about God and what was going on was wrong. You want to get after somebody, talk about who Christ is. Get to their minds. That's what God does. That's what he changes our orientation. It's a, it's a whole orientation. This is not some mystical preoccupation with the future. Paul wants the Colossians to see, to be grounded in Christ's death and resurrection, is to see through all the hollowness of this world and its philosophy. To seek and to think on things above also has ethical significance later on. And he's going to spell that out in verses 5 and following. All the things that, that will change as we replace a vice for a virtue. And that's a consistent theme. You know, you, you, you take hate and replace it with love. You take lying and you replace it with truth-telling. He's going to do that. He's going to talk about having one affection replace the other. And then he throws in the little word, uh, little phrase in the second part of verse 2, not on, things, not on things that are on earth. And I love what C.S. Lewis says, says about that. He says, you know, if we aim at heaven, you'll get earth thrown in. If you aim at earth, 
you'll get neither. If you're aiming at earth, you got nothing that has any value, any weight. If you want to read a great little book by C.S. Lewis, The Weight of Glory. Our relationship with Christ has weight. It's heavy, kavod. It's weighty. And only in Christ can we get that. Okay, let's look to verse 3. For you have died. There he goes again. Died, raised. What, what is going on? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's again speaking here of a spiritual death. He said earlier in, in chapter 2, verse 20, If with Christ you died to the elementary, elemental spirits of the world, We just learned that our ability to set our minds on things above is contingent with being raised with Christ. But it's also contingent upon dying with Christ. And there's practical implications of that. Because we died with Christ, we can live with him. But you got to die first. Some of us don't want to die. Some of us don't want to throw away our lives, so to speak. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. What? But Christ lives in me. Praise his name. You see, the believer's death with Christ severs the, a very key link. It severs the link from the tyranny of the powers of this world and provides the power to live a new life. J.A. Packer in Knowing God said that the greatest miracle in the world is when somebody comes to faith in Christ. It's a miracle when somebody comes to faith in Christ. The believer's union with Christ in his death is the basis for spiritual security, protection from evil powers, and the ability to live a life that has, in the words of one commentator, primary loyalty to Christ. Where is your loyalty this morning? Who are you most loyal to? Is it primarily Christ, or is it other things? This is the gospel. This is the news that's good. The gospel is good news. This is the news that's good. For, for I delivered to you a first point importance, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, And what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day he rose again. 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. That is the gospel. That is the good news. And we're tied up in it. We're tied up in that for those that believe. Our union with Christ is what enables us, and if you have a Bible, turn with me to chapter 1, verse 10. There's a bunch of things that that happen here. So, If you try to live in a manner that pleases God without Christ, you'll never do it. If if you're trying to be a good person and think that God's going to take your good works over the the death of his son, you have missed the boat. There's nothing that you can do to please God without Christ. Verse 10, chapter 1, verse 10. So then, or so that, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. And what happens? When we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we please him in all respects. What else happens? We bear fruit in every good work, 
What else happens? We increase in the knowledge of God. What else happens? We are strengthened with all power. That's the gospel. That's what the gospel does to people. When you really believe it, it's power. And only God can do that through his son, through our belief in his son. And then the second part of the verse, your life is hidden with Christ and God. Theologians have had fun with this thought. This thought only comes up one time in the Bible. Here. Lucky me. One time in the Bible. What does he mean? Nowhere else in the Bible is there an idea of the believer being hidden. Later on, in, in actually earlier in chapter 1, verse 26, and chapter 2, verse 3, he talks about this idea of concealment followed by revelation. This idea of being hidden, and then all of a sudden it's going to be made known. I think that idea is going on here. And it's with reference in those places to the mystery of the gospel, which is now revealed to the saints, hidden reality of the hope laid up in heaven. There's a sense to which the new life in Christ, if you've experienced it, you don't even know really what's happened to you, totally happened to you. But this will not always be so. There'll come a day when what we will be will be revealed in full, in spades. God hides his children in a safe place till glory. And that's what Psalm 27 verse 5 is getting at. For on the day of trouble, he will conceal me in his tabernacle. He's going to protect me. God knows how to keep his children He will hide me in the secret places of his tent. He will lift me up on a rock. God knows how to keep you. If you put your trust in Christ, he will keep you. He knows nobody's going to snatch you from his hands. And then C.S. Lewis, again, in The Weight of Glory, has a very helpful illustration of what it means to be hidden with Christ in that we don't really understand who we are yet if we've believed, or who we are if we haven't believed. Listen to this. It is a serious thing, says Lewis, to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you ever, you may talk to one day will be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Remember I talked about John in the book of Revelation? Or else a horror so in a corruption such as you would meet at all, only in a nightmare. I think in heaven, God's people will be glorious. We will be glorious. Not as glorious as Christ. Our vessels will be small compared to his. But we'll be glorious because of what he's done. That's the hope of heaven. Okay, finally, verse 4. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So again, verse 3, concealment, it's hidden. Verse 4, revelation, it's going to be revealed. The reference appear is the counterpart to hidden. So it says appear or revealed. What is hidden will be revealed in full when Christ returns. The life and the destiny of the believer is inextricably tied to Christ. We follow his coattails, if you will. We follow him. That's why he says to people, follow me. 
follow me to glory, not just for this life. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, the chapter on resurrection, if it's only for this life that we, we have hope, if it's only for this life that we live, then we are to be pitied more than all men. It's not just this life. It's the life to come. It's the life to come, which has no end. Our union and identification with Christ is real, but it's not fully revealed. But listen to 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God. In what we are has not yet been made known. Again, it's, it's concealed, it's hidden. But we know that when Christ appears, now listen to this. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Praise his name. When we see him, we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an, twinkling of an eye. We're going to be transformed. All the struggles, all the pain, all the bodily ills, everything, we're going to be transformed. And we're going to get a body that matches what's going on in our souls. We're going to get something that, that will never perish, never spoil, never fade because of what he's done. The Christian life is not just about the here and now. It is, but it's about the future. Notice the reference to Christ, who is your life. For, for me to live is Christ, Paul said in 1 Corinthians um, 1.21. If we live our lives with, focused, with a focus centered on Christ, as talked about in verses 1 through 3, then we'll have an assurance that we will be vindicated when Christ appears with power and great glory, when he comes again. When Christ appears in glory at his return the second time, believers will appear with them for what they are with Christ, with Christ. You see, believers died with him, they're buried with him, they're raised with him, and they will return with him, all those things. The past, the present, in the future are all tied up in Christ. And this is an uphill battle. This is an uphill climb. To get to heaven is, a hard, is hard work. It's work. But hearts that are not bound for heaven are bound for hell. Heaven is a place, Jonathan Edwards said, of eternal embraces and eternal joys where God is our portion. He whose arms are open to suffer to be nailed to the cross will doubtless be open as wide to embrace those for whom he suffered. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to leave you alone. He'll be with you. So really, there are three things that you need to know. Three things. Christ came into the world to die a criminal's death and assuage the wrath of God on the cross so that we might have a, have a new life. This is news that's good. That's the gospel. This is news that's good. The result of him dying and rising again is new life, new creation, he says in 1 Corinthians 5.21. And this will bring about a new perspective. It will bring about a new orientation of your will. Not overnight, but in time. You ought to be able to look past, if you've been a Christian any length of time, the last year, the last two years, the last three years. Are you making progress in the faith? Are you growing in the faith? But as I said before, you need to be born from above to seek what is above. John 3.3, 3, Jesus talked to Nicodemus and he said, unless a man is born again, 
he will not be able to enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is like, what? He was a great Pharisee, Pharisee of Pharisees. What? That word born again, anothen, is the same word that is used here for above. Anothen. It's not really born again. It didn't sell that well. It's born above, born from above, which means a new orientation of our will. It means that we can seek what is above because we've been transformed from below, from inside. So don't try to seek what is above without believing, repenting, trusting in Christ. The Latin word fiducia, fide, confident trust in Christ. If you haven't believed, believe. And then you will have a new life. And then finally, for the believer, the best is yet to come. Do you know that this morning? The best is yet to be for the believer. It's yet to come. And if you put your trust in Christ for salvation, then think on this. You want to think on something this afternoon? Think on this. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who who love him. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. And we thank you this morning that you have worked a wonder in sending your only beloved son to die for sinners such as us. We are undeserving. We know that you are great and you do great things on our behalf. And we thank you we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your steadfast love. We thank you that you forgive wickedness and rebellion and sin. We thank you, Father, that you have love that we know not of, that you maintain love to thousands, and that you are good and that you are great. And we pray that you'd help us today to live in such a manner through Christ, in Christ, that pleases you knowing that he died for us, that he rose again for us, that he will come again for us. We pray, Father, that we would not be hard, that our hearts would be soft and supple in your hands, that we would worship you and give you the due that you deserve. For you are in the heavens and you do whatever pleases you. We pray that you'd be pleased to bring us to the point where we are totally, 100% loyal to Christ, sold on Christ, believe on Christ, hold on to Christ. Give us what we need, as Augustine said, Father. Command what you will, but give what you command. Help us, Lord, to do these things. We thank you, we praise you, we give you the glory for the great things that you have done in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.